Our scripture passage today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to, be his own, to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now fulfilled, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And Jesus had received the sour wine. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help. So let us begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Even these details that John witnessed himself the most tragic and glorious moment in all of human history. Father, we need your help to see and to hear and to be changed. Give us your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I do apologize for the bulletin, Miss Brent. If you've been around long, you'll know that I am the king of typos, and editing is not my strong suit. And now that I am in charge of our bulletin, you can expect every week. Uh, maybe this is a thing for the children to find, you know, throughout the service. You know, circle all the things that Pastor John got wrong in the bulletin, and you can bring it to me. Uh, kind of a where's Waldo for you. But as we come to our passage today, we are continuing in our sermon series of John. And uh, last time we looked at the beginning of John chapter 19, and uh, we went into some great detail about what a scourging would have been like at the hands of the Romans. It was the beginning of Christ taking upon himself the punishment that we deserved. Indeed, it was brutal. And we are told now what happened after that scourging. 
after Pilate had done everything in his power to try to release Jesus, knowing that he was innocent, had no choice. Well, he did have a choice, but acquiesced to the the religious leaders of the day and handed Jesus over to be crucified. Today we're going to look at this passage and we're going to look at several things that it shows us. We'll just walk through the narrative as John relays it to us and we're going to see the crucifixion of Jesus. We're going to see the coronation of Jesus as a king. We're going to see Jesus providing comfort. We're going to see Jesus completing his task. And ultimately we're going to see how Jesus is in control even in the midst of such terrible punishment. But first, we see his crucifixion. We're told in the end of chapter 6, verse 16, moving into 17, so they took Jesus and and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Now, as we think about the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, as I said in my opening prayer, John is the only apostle who wrote about the crucifixion that would have seen it firsthand. We are told in this account that John is there. John is at the foot of the cross with these women. And it is interesting how little detail... John includes. Even in our uh, last message, as it said that they flogged Jesus, he doesn't go into detail. Part of the reason why one would not need to go into great detail about a flogging or a crucifixion is that it would not have been unknown. It was quite common for this to take place. It was quite public for this to take place. One word carried with it so much weight. Crucifixion carried with it such a vivid image in the first century that John doesn't need to belabor the point about how heinous this would have been. A short summary of what crucifixion looked like can be found in the Encyclopedia Britannica. It says this, Usually the condemned man, after being whipped or flogged, or scourged, dragged the crossbeam of his cross to the place of punishment, where the upright shaft was already fixed on the ground, and he was stripped of his clothing either then or earlier at his scourging, and he was bound fast with outstretched arms on a crossbeam or nailed firmly to it through his wrists. And the crossbeam was then raised high against the upright shaft and made fast to it about nine to twelve feet from the ground. Next, his feet were tightly bound or nailed to the upright shaft. A ledge inserted about halfway up the, the upright shaft gave some support to the body. Evidence for a similar ledge for the feet is rare. Over the criminal's head was placed a notice stating his name and his crime. Death ultimately occurred through a combination of constrained blood, hastened by shattering the legs, I'm sorry, constrained blood circulation, organ failure, and asphyxiation of the body constrained under its own weight. 
It could be hastened by the shattering of legs with an iron club, which prevented them from supporting their body's weight and made inhalation more difficult, accelerating both asphyxiation and shock. Crucifixion was most frequently used to punish political or religious agitators, pirates, slaves, or those who had no civil rights. The people who crucified Jesus were not new at their task. This would have been quite common in the day. In fact, uh, when you think of a typical crucifixion, there certainly is some sense of which this would have happened uh, in a familiar way. But at the same time, it was almost this delight of the Romans to have variety. Oftentimes, we think of Jesus as having two, you know, th- two nails, one in each hand and one through both of his feet or something. You know, maybe that's the, the picture you've seen of Jesus being crucified up on some sort of a lowercase t type cross. But sometimes the crosses were upside down or just the shape of an X. Sometimes uh, the feet were nailed on either side of the post through the heel. These men were trained murderers, executioners, you know, the guy with the black robe. They seem to be callous to the acts that they have to perform. The whole point of a crucifixion is to make it the most painful, elongated suffering before death. Indeed, the scourging was so bad, many did not make it through. And we're told here that Jesus had to bear his own cross. He didn't carry the whole T with him, but he got the cross beam. And he carries it with him. They would force them to drag this cross through the town. Of course, taking the longest possible route, seeing as many people as possible to make a message clear from the Romans to those who see this criminal that crime does not pay. And this inscription of their crime goes before them as somebody would walk around showing what this person had done and why they were going to be crucified. It wasn't uncommon for somebody to not be able to make the journey from their scourging to the place of crucifixion. And we see that in our parallel accounts as Jesus is carrying his crossbeam and is unable to bear its weight. And Simon the Cyrene must take it up for him. It's an image of how destroyed Jesus already was before he came to the cross. The nails who, which held a man to the cross were just enough to hold him up there. And there was just enough support with that beam at the midway up so that you might be able to gain for yourself a quick breath. The torturous, drawn-out, shameful public hanging of a man on a cross was the most cruel way to die. And as our encyclopedia entry here says here, it's for those who had no civil rights. No Roman citizen would have ever faced 
such a punishment, I suppose, unless they were seeking to be a political or religious agitator. Jesus is dying a criminal's death. We're told he is there between two other men, one on either side and Jesus in the middle. No doubt these two men were the co-conspirators with Barabbas, the one who was released. And so Jesus dies on this cross. He is crucified on this cross in place of a criminal He suffers the most shameful of deaths. Come back to the crucifixion in a moment. We move on to see this in verse 19. Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on this cross. The man who would have led Jesus through the streets on the way out of town. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, if you remember, Nazareth was not a place that people thought highly of, not only in Jerusalem, but I imagine the Romans didn't think very highly of it either. And as Pilate has been annoyed by these religious leaders trying to let Jesus go, ultimately is kind of blackmailed into crucifying Jesus, well, he wants to jab them back. And not only is this a slight to Jesus, the Nazareth man, king of the Jews, this irony that look at your king, but it is a slight to the Jews as a nation. Now think about this. It is the beginning of the Passover feast. They're right outside of the city, likely on a place where people would have passed by. And this would have been a high time for travel as people were coming in to celebrate the Passover. And so Jesus is hanging up on this cross. And this is the inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The religious leaders, they don't like this. It is written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. Aramaic being the language of the Jewish people at this time. Latin, the language of the Romans. And Greek, the common language of all of the people. So that no one can mistake what the charge was against this man. The chief priest didn't like this and they tried to persuade Pilate to say, No, 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 don't say king of the Jews. Say he claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. Get out of here. I'm not going to change what I've done. These people do not like to be identified with this king of Nazareth. Pilate wrote more than he knew. King of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth. But he also wrote... Not enough, because Jesus was not merely the king of the Jews, merely a man from Nazareth. Of course, we know that Jesus was the king of kings. The great, better David. The one who is seated on the throne, high and lifted up above all authority. 
But this is what we see here as Paul talks about this reality in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Crucified King. Foolishness. Pilate thinks he's putting on display this supposed king of the Jews. He doesn't realize who Jesus truly is, and yet here is almost a prophetic writing about Jesus, the king of the Jews, written in all of the languages of all of the people, declared publicly. Indeed, Jesus is the king of the Jews, and he is the king of all those in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. But the Jews rejected him. The Romans considered him a fool. Jesus is coming into his kingdom. That's what he's been telling his disciples. The hour has come for him to enter into his glory. Jesus has been coronated through the streets of Jerusalem. Look at your king of the Jews, unrecognizable by the wounds which have been afflicted by the Romans, who is going to be hanged on a cross, naked and shameful. Which brings us to verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and they divided them into four parts. Each part, uh, one part for each of them, and also his tunic. But his tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but we'll cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. And so the soldiers did these things. This was to fulfill what was written Psalm 22, verse 18. Now, of course, we know that these Roman soldiers were really, you know, intimately equated with Psalm 22. And so when they were thinking about taking Jesus' clothes, they thought, oh, we better cast lots for this last piece. Of course, that is not what is going on here. What's going on here is that God knew what was going to happen thousand years before this event ever took place. Psalm 22 Verse 18 says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22 is one of the messianic psalms. If you are familiar with the different accounts of Jesus on the cross, we are often told about seven sayings. Many of them come from Psalm 22. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is a lament of David, who is undergoing severe suffering. And yet it is pointing to this far greater reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is going to suffer ultimately for his people. Psalm 22 goes on to describe the scene and the vivid Parallels here to the account of what happens as Jesus is crucified and dies is simply amazing. 
scorned by mankind and despised by people, verse 6. Verse 7, all who see me mock me, and they make mouths at me, and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. If you're the son of God, if you're the savior, if you can save others, why don't you save yourself? The mockery is almost verbatim. I am poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Dogs encompass me and a company of evil doers, doers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. This prophetic word from the mouth of David in Psalm 22 is on the lips of Jesus. It reminds us that the Lord is in control of all that is happening here and now. That it was no surprise that this would take place. And it would take place in these detailed ways. As the king is coronated to his throne. As he is exalted before the people. As Jesus is on the cross, as Jesus has endured such public shame, as he is suffering to even catch a breath, as he is naked and held before the people in the most shameful possible way, seeing these wicked men gamble for his clothes. In the face of death, Jesus is more concerned about other people than he is about himself. And we see here in verse 25 the great comfort that Jesus brings to those whom he loves. He's on the cross and he sees his mother and his aunt and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene standing there. Looking up, no doubt, in horror of what has just transpired. One parenthetical comment. These women, in their faith, their willingness to be identified with this criminal king who is being executed at the hands of the Romans should not be overlooked. Because except for John, we see nothing here of the rest of the disciples. All we have seen up to this point is their failures, Peter's denials, those who are off hiding away. And yet here, these women are standing there. Great bravery. No doubt weeping over what has just happened to their Lord. And Jesus sees his mother and the disciple whom he loved. It's a reference to John who's written this for us. And he says to her, woman, behold your son. And he says to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Jesus is in the last moments of his life. And he sees his mother. And he knows as the oldest son, he is to care for her and provide what she needs as she enters into her elderly life. He makes an arrangement 
with his disciple. It's interesting that this takes place. And a couple of details here I think are important for us to understand the significance of the relationships that have changed between Jesus and his mother. Indeed, Mary is called blessed. I can't think of a more privileged position to be than the one who would give birth to the Son of God. Indeed, women, uh, throughout the ages, many will call Mary blessed. Now, we don't want to worship Mary or overly esteem her role in some sort of redemptive way, but Mary has the most intimate relationship with Jesus possible. But now here, Jesus does not call her mother He calls her woman. Now, it's not a derogatory way that maybe it sounds in our day. Dear woman, maybe, would be a better way to kind of get the idea across. No longer my mother. Dear woman, behold your son. You see, Mary is not going to receive the benefits of what Christ is doing on the cross merely because she gave birth to him. Mary will become like all others who are in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Jesus makes this point in Matthew chapter 12 when his mother and brothers come to see him. He was still speaking, and behold, his mother and brothers stood outside and asked to speak to him. And he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hands towards his disciple, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. But what perhaps is most interesting here is Jesus is not the only sibling in his household. And it would have been natural for the mother to have uh, the responsibility passed to the next son. And so what we're seeing here is that the church, the disciples, John, the disciple John is the one who is given the care of Jesus' mother. Why? At this point in the story, Jesus' brothers don't believe. Remember earlier when they went up to the temple and Jesus didn't go with them and and they kind of gave him a hard time about it. They didn't believe in him. They didn't understand who he was. Now, ultimately, we find out that they do come to believe in him. James is Jesus' brother. He writes for us a letter in the New Testament. But at this point, the care of Jesus' mother is given to his disciples. A new family has been formed, and no longer is it Jesus and his earthly mother. But it is the people of God, the family of God, all being made into children of the Father. This is what is on Jesus' mind as he is about to die. I can't imagine thinking about anything besides myself if I was about to die. If there was ever a time to be concerned about your own needs, it would be here. And yet Jesus, with one of his few last words, does the faithful thing of an older son and cares for Mary. 
Now after this, Jesus, knowing all that was finished, he said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge of sour wine on hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. This is a quote from Psalm 69. Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Once again, an illusion, a reminder that none of this is happening by accident. That this word spoken in Psalm 69, verse 21, had to come to pass. And here in the the very last moment of Jesus' life, makes it come about. Drinking the sour wine of wrath, of bitterness. An imagery of the painful, bitter suffering that he has already endured. And Jesus, having received the sour wine, says, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Interestingly, Psalm 22 ends with a very similar phrase. And they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn, that he has done it. Jesus had come for many reasons. Jesus had done many acts. Jesus had spoken many things. And loved many people. And it all culminated in this moment. It was all leading up to this hour. important for us to be reminded of these passages because they are often all too familiar for us. If we were to be those who would follow the church calendar every, you know, Easter, we would remember the resurrection, but leading up to it, Good Friday. And because of those rhythms that we find in the church, sometimes they become so rhythmic, we begin to be deadened to the weight of it. Why is it that the chief thing that Jesus does, why is it here that Jesus knows it is finished? Why is it now that we need to be reminded of the crucifixion? There's a lot of imagery in this passage. Of course, we're at the time of the Passover. Of course, the Passover lamb was slaughtered to be reminded of that time before the exodus when the angel of death came into Egypt to kill the firstborn sons. And they would sprinkle the uh, blood on the doorposts and the angel of death would pass over them. Indeed, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, whose blood gives us the ability to be passed over. That when judgment and wrath comes, we can point to the blood that Jesus shed on the cross and be passed over because he is our substitute. 
But Jesus is not merely the Passover lamb. Oftentimes we just like to keep him in that one little box. But Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament feasts and sacrifices. And there's one thing in particular here that I think is worth delving into. And that is found in our opening verse. They took Jesus and he went out. You see, the Passover lamb was not sacrificed outside of the city. None of the sacrifices were given outside of the temple. Except for one. And it wasn't really even a sacrifice. It's from Leviticus chapter 16. It's for the Day of Atonement. There were to be these two sacrifices. Two, I believe, bulls. I'm sorry, goats would be brought in. One would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. Okay? You would expect that on the Day of Atonement. Verse 20 tells us this. After Aaron had made uh, an end of atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting the altar, he shall present a live goat. And Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat. Now this is the other one. And confess over it the iniquities of the people of Israel and all of the transgressions of their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And the goat shall bear all of their iniquities on itself to a remote area and shall let the goat go free into the wilderness. This is often referred to as the scapegoat. That in this day of atonement, there, there was this reality that the sins of the people could be atoned for in some sense by animals. And ultimately, the way that the system was set up is that the high priest would be gaining, uh, carrying with him some remnant of the sin of the people. And the only way for it to be removed from him would be to put it onto this goat and then to send it away. Jesus is not merely the Passover lamb. Indeed, he is that. But he is more than that. He is also here in our passage, the scapegoat, the one who was sent away. We're talking in our Bible study this past week about the sign of circumcision in the Abrahamic covenant to be cut off from the people of God. Those who did not have the sign were considered cut off. That's the same imagery of this scapegoat. The one who's going to be sent out there. Bearing the sins of the people. And so it is for our Lord going out. The hands of the Romans to die out there. And not just out there, but at the place of a skull. And it begins to bring to mind some more imagery. Now we're told this name, both in Aramaic and in Greek. And if you want to know the Latin, it's Calvary. People think that the image of it might have been in the shape of a skull. No doubt there's this imagery, at least, of many people who would have died there. And so the place of a skull sounds pretty appropriate for the place of execution. But when we think back to Genesis chapter 3, what is the promise made? 
and the first time of God's promise of redemption that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Indeed, Jesus here in his death is crushing Satan's head at the place of the skull. And it does not look like he has done anything. If anything, it looks like Jesus has been defeated. But we must be reminded that Jesus is in control. Jesus, who has brought about all of these words from Psalm 22, written a thousand years before, willingly endured the cross as our scapegoat to bear our sin as our Passover lamb that we might be passed over and live, bearing in his body the wrath and curse of God so that you and I and all who are called by the Lord Jesus Christ's name can be forgiven and saved. This is why Jesus declares, it is finished. No more sin to be dealt with. No more sacrifices to be offered. No more works to be done. Jesus has lived the perfect life, has obeyed the Father perfectly, and has passively received in himself all of the punishment for the sins of his elect people. It is this great act that ought to bring us joy. It is what we will celebrate in our meal in a moment. And yet, when we look to it, it is hard for us to see the joy. And yet, that's what we're told in Hebrews chapter 12. That we ought to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus didn't go to the cross, you know, hedging his bets. Jesus didn't go to the cross unsure of how it's going to work out. Jesus went to the cross knowing how shameful it would be, knowing he would bear our shame and your shame, knowing he would bear all sorts of pain, ultimately enduring death itself. But there was joy set before him. The joy that he would bring many sons and daughters into the kingdom of heaven. That through his obedience to the Father, that through his substitutionary death, you can be made a child of God. That he could show forth his love to you. Like one who runs a race, as 
what the imagery here is in Hebrews chapter 12. You can have the joy of the victory at the end. Well, Jesus' victory at the end, being seated at the right hand of the Father, being inaugurated here as the King, not just the King of the Jews, but the King of kings and the Lord of lords, paying for the redemption of his people, that it might bring glory to his Father. This was the joy of Christ. It was a joy for him to endure such heinous ridicule, such painful affliction for you. And John writes these things to us. The one who saw this firsthand, remember, we'll get to it here in just a few weeks. John chapter 20, he wrote these things that we might believe That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have life. If we want to have life, if we want to know what it means to believe in Jesus, we look to a sacrificed Savior on a cross. And we know that he did such a tremendous thing with joy in his heart for his people. And that that was the payment needed for us to have life. There is no life through anything else. There is no way to the Father except through him. All of the things Jesus had spoken, he verified in this final act. May we look to the cross with great appreciation, with great sobriety. May we look to the cross and see our sin, how heinous it truly is, but how fully paid for it has been born in our Savior. May we find comfort knowing that Jesus rejoices over your salvation that he willingly laid down his life for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for providing for us Christ's sacrifice that we might be forgiven. Lord, it's easy for us to forget how heinous sin is, how costly it is for us to be made into your children. And yet, you give up everything, even your own son. Help us to rejoice, to be full of thanksgiving. Help us to be changed by this reality that Christ would not have died in vain. Help us to look to the cross for our salvation, for our comfort, to be reminded of your love for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.